We're going to be looking at Matthew 9, verses 18 through 26. So if you would stand, if you're able, and we'll read from God's Word. It's on page 814 in the Black Pew Bibles, and it'll also be on the screen. So the Word of God from Matthew. While he was saying these things to them, behold, a ruler came in and knelt before him, saying, My daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her, and she will live. And Jesus rose and followed him with his disciples. And behold, a woman who had suffered from a discharge of blood for 12 years came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment. For she said to herself, if I only touch his garment, I will be made well. Jesus turned and seeing her, he said, take heart, daughter, your faith has made you well. And instantly the woman was made well. And when Jesus came to the ruler's house and saw the flute players and the crowd making a commotion, he said, Go away, for the girl is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But when the crowd had been put outside, he went in and took her by the hand, and the girl arose. And the report of this went throughout all that district. And as Jesus passed on from there, two blind men followed him, crying aloud, Have mercy on us, son of David. When he entered the house, the blind men came to him, and Jesus said to them, Do you believe that I am able to do this? They said to him, Yes, Lord. Then he touched their eyes, saying, According to your faith, be it done to you. And I'm reading into next week's passage. So, sorry, Aaron. I, I, I was already preparing for next week, so I guess I just was like on that train. But it's God's words, right? So, um, let's pray. Aaron, if you'll come up here and pray. We thank you for your word, Lord. Um, we thank you for revealing yourself to us, uh, for giving us hope and healing in, in your gospel, for being so kind to us, for being so patient with us, um, for not just making us but redeeming us, Father. Um, just work in our brother, work through our brother as he proclaims your word, as he speaks truth. Um, we're so thankful for him. We're thankful for Caitlin. We're thankful for James. And um, we're so um, grateful, Father, for your goodness in so many ways and, and just giving us a family where we could admit our need, where we could um, have that met in you and um, through others. Father, through you, Father, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. <clears throat> I'm not going to lie, I had a, a tiny heart attack just now. I thought, I didn't write anything about the blind men. <laughs> I'm just teasing. Uh, well, good morning, Karis. So good to see you guys today. Uh, in January of 2020, <clears throat> Basketball Hall of Famer Kobe Bryant tragically passed away when uh, a helicopter carrying he and his daughter and then several other people uh, crashed in Southern California. In the days and weeks that followed that event, uh, a number of friends and former teammates and other folks who uh, knew Kobe Bryant, paid tribute to him by sharing some of their fondest memories and personal interactions that they had had with him. Uh, one story that was shared was from an ESPN anchor named Elle Duncan. She recounted the one and only time that she interacted with Kobe at a sports center event in New York. At that time, uh, Elle Duncan, she was eight months pregnant with a baby girl, and Kobe, at the time, uh, had three daughters himself. He'd end up having one more daughter. Uh, and she, uh, she told this story about how, or he, Kobe told Duncan about how awesome it was raising daughters. 
Duncan asked if he and his wife were thinking about having any more kids, to which Kobe said uh, he and his wife, Vanessa, wanted to try again for a boy, but that his wife was jokingly concerned that they might end up with another girl, which they did. Uh, in that moment, just about ready to have her first girl, the Sports Center anchor expressed bewilderment at the idea of having four daughters. Kobe's response ended up becoming the most famous part of this interaction. He responded without hesitation, I would have five more girls if I could. I'm a girl dad. And so after that segment aired on ESPN, the, the hashtag girl dad began to, to trend on social media. In a tribute to Kobe and his daughter, uh, fathers began to share pictures and stories, encouragement, memories with their daughters on social media. And now at this point today, you know, girl dad has kind of even just entered the modern vernacular a little bit. And I know there's a ton of girl dads in our gathering here this morning. Some of y'all have been girl dads for years, some for months. Some of y'all will be girl dads in a couple days. Uh, exciting. And so I want to ask you guys uh, this morning as we investigate God's word together, what would you do for your daughters? What lengths would you go to to love them and to serve them and to rescue them when they were in need? And now I realize that if I only speak to girl dads this morning, I'm really kind of unnecessarily limiting my audience. So I don't just want to think of, you know, girl dads in here. I'm speaking to moms as well. And truly, if followers of Jesus, if we're brothers and sisters with one another, uh, then as we look at our family tree, in a way, you know, we're spiritual aunts and uncles to the kids in our church. That's kind of what we commit to when we do those baby dedications a couple times a year. So that same question can go out to everyone here this morning. Fathers or mothers, spiritual uncles, spiritual aunts, what would you do for the daughters of Carr's church? In what ways would you or have you loved and served them? And now likewise, if I limit my words only to daughters, I run the risk of not speaking into the lives of sons or spiritual nephews. And so I'll say right off the bat that everything I say this morning, everything in our passage applies to both women and men the same. And yet, because of the content of our verses this morning, I want women to be centered in the passage in the way that, or I want women to be centered in the sermon the same way that women centers Matthew. I am tongue-tied this morning. I want women to be centered in the sermon the same way Matthew centers women in our passage. Because you see, we find ourselves with these neat couple of stories today. In Matthew 9, 18 through 26, the main characters, besides Jesus, are two young women. And I think because of that, Matthew has something important to say to God's people about the value of women, about true faith, and about true purity. So let's dive in to our passage. If you still got your Bibles open, look down into verse 18 with me. While he was saying these things to them, stop. What things? I know we don't always have to do a, you know, previously on the Gospel of Matthew every week, but when the passage starts out by directly connecting us to the preceding verses, we should make sure we refresh ourselves a little bit. If you were here last week, then you heard Pastor Kevin uh, preach on this passage where Jesus used these, these really two kind of interesting, possibly confusing illustrations about garment repair and wine fermenting, just as a refresher. Jesus said last week to us, 
No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch tears away from the garment, and a worse tear is made. Neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst, and the wine is spilled, and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wineskins, so both are preserved. Kevin told us that what Jesus is getting at here is he's telling us about his kingdom and how it's truly and totally new. It wasn't business as usual, and it couldn't be made to squeeze into the way things had always been done. So when Matthew starts off this next story, while he was saying these things, it's right on the heels of Jesus' teaching. It's almost as if Matthew is interjecting this story to show us just exactly how Jesus' kingdom is new. In these verses, Matthew says, okay, now watch this. And he gives us a picture of this new piece of cloth, this new garment, this new wine, these new wineskins, what it's all about. In what sense are Jesus and his kingdom truly new? Let's look back into our passage. While he was saying these things to them, behold, a ruler came in and knelt before him, saying, My daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her, and she will live. What would you do for your daughters? Matthew doesn't tell us a ton here in his version about the ruler, but if we look over at Luke's version of the story, we get a little bit more detail about who this guy is and what the situation is. Look with me real fast. And there came a man named Jairus, who was a ruler of the synagogue. And, and falling at Jesus' feet, he implored him to come to his house. For he had an only daughter, about 12 years of age, and she was dying. So what is this father, Jairus, willing to do for his daughter? Think, let's think about it. He's the ruler of the local synagogue. Not a Roman ruler, Jewish ruler. In Jesus' day, synagogues were uh, ruled by a group of elders or rabbis or teachers. These were the Bible nerds who kind of gave the sermons and the teachings, maintained the, the doctrine and the direction of the group. But then those elders would together select a ruler for the synagogue. This person, this was a, a lay person, a volunteer, who was responsible for the upkeep uh, of the building, managing all the elements of the Sabbath day services. So basically, you can think about this guy, Jairus. It would be like here at Karis if we rolled Bobby, our deacon of music, Hannah, our deacon of administration, Ben, our deacon of tech, and Jana Ray, our deacon of facilities, into one single volunteer. That's who Jairus is. This man was specially selected by the elders and then entrusted with a huge amount of responsibility. He was a well-respected leader and a pillar in his community, most likely, because for a small rural town in Galilee, this may have been the only synagogue for people to attend. So what is Jairus willing to do for his daughter? Two things are significant. The first, at the very minimum, is that he comes to Jesus at all. Presumably, Jairus and his family had been praying and trying to help their daughter. But then as the sickness continued to worsen, they no doubt enlisted the efforts of the elders at the synagogue, the local physicians, to pray for and care for her. But unfortunately, it was to no avail. So merely by approaching Jesus to enlist his help, 
Jairus must admit that he himself is not enough, that he and his elders' abilities are not enough. But Jairus doesn't just come to Jesus. Verse 18 specifically says that he kneels before Jesus. This posture uh, physically reflects his heart of reverence, of allegiance or faith that he puts in Jesus. So what's he willing to do? He's willing to put his reputation and his position on the line for his daughter. By giving his allegiance to Jesus, he says, I'm joining your team. I'm throwing my lot in with you. I think we've seen so far in our journey through the Gospel of Matthew that Jesus often butts heads with the Pharisees, a specific group of Bible teachers. And almost certainly, one or more of the rabbis at the synagogue would have been Pharisees. So to see the synagogue ruler that you selected kneel before this traveling teacher, let alone one who has a reputation for questioning your judgment and authority, that would have been more than enough to have Jairus removed from his position as ruler. And then what about his place in the community? How embarrassing. How shameful it might have been for him to be that guy labeled forever as the one who got stripped of his title of synagogue ruler. But Jairus was willing to risk, risk it all to put his faith in Jesus to help his daughter live again. So Jesus and his disciples, they get up and start to head over to his house. Let's jump down to verse 23. We'll circle back to the woman with the bleeding disorder because I want to make sure that she gets our undivided attention. But down to verse 23. When Jesus came to the ruler's house and saw the flute players and the crowd making a commotion, he said, go away, for the girl is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. All right. This is quite the scene, isn't it? Jesus and his disciples, they arrive at Jairus' house and things are absolutely wild. You know, where's the decorum? Where's the hushed tones? Where's the respect? Maybe you would remember a few weeks ago when we talked about that would-be disciple who said, Jesus, let me bury my father first, and then I'll follow you. We talked about how uh, first-century Jews, they would have two funerals and two burials for their deceased relatives, a year apart from each other. Again, we see here that the mourning rituals of Jesus' day are very different from ours today. These flute players and the clamoring, uh, clamoring crowds They are mercenary mourners. Yeah, in Jesus' day, it was a cultural rule that you had to hire people to weep and wail at your house when someone died. Even the poorest members of the community were expected to hire at least one flute player and at least two mourners. So, for a man of Jairus' stature, we shouldn't be surprised to see flute players, plural, and a large crowd gathered. And Jesus pushes through all the commotion and tells them, hey y'all, false alarm. She's only sleeping. And they all laugh in his face. This guy, this guy thinks we don't know when someone's dead. Come on. Maybe you would have laughed too though. Like, after all, these people literally are professionals. It's their job to show up to dying people's houses and then turn on the waterworks. 
Imagine if I walked into your workplace and told you that you had messed up the most fundamental aspect of your job. If this had happened today, someone would probably, in the crowd, yell back at Jesus like, dude, quit gaslighting us. But Jesus leads, or Jairus leads Jesus into his daughter's room. The synagogue ruler enters maybe with a look of tempered hope on his face. The girl's mom is already there. Maybe she sees Jesus and her face lights up. She knows who this guy is. Or maybe she sees him and she just shakes her head at her husband. She doesn't want to be filled with false hope, only to be let down one more time. But either way, Jesus sits down next to their daughter, gently squeezes her hand, and then her chest starts to rise and fall again. Her eyes start to twitch before opening, and as soon as she's aware of where she is, she gets up out of bed, runs towards her parents who are waiting there with a snack. Regardless of what it may have ended up costing him, Jairus' faith in Jesus was not in vain. He had faith in Jesus' power and authority to heal. Okay, let's return to verses 20 through 22 then and see this other interaction that Jesus has in our passage. Look at it with me, verse 20. Behold, a woman who had suffered from a discharge of blood for 12 years came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment. For she said to herself, if I only touch his garment, I will be made well. Jesus turned and seeing her, he said, take heart, daughter, your faith has made you well. And instantly the woman was made well. So as Jesus and his disciples are on their way to Jairus' home, they get stopped. Again, for whatever reason, Matthew doesn't give us a ton of detail. If we look over at Mark's version of this story, we can get some more description of the interaction. In Mark, he says, There was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for 12 years and who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if I touch even his garment, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned around in the crowd and said, who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, you see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. Cars Church, what would we do for the women and girls in our church? How do we view and how do we value women here? How does Jesus view and value women in these verses? Here we see Jesus and his disciples in the middle of a key ministry task. They're on their way to raise from the dead an important man's daughter. And yet, Jesus has time to stop and care for this woman as well. The disciples, it seems like maybe they're a little bit anxious to get to Jairus' house. 
Jesus stops in the middle of the street and says, wait a second, who just touched me? Imagine you're leaving a football game at Faroe Field or you're leaving a concert at the Blue Note and you stop, you turn to the person you're with and you say, hang on, I got to figure out who just bumped into me. Peter goes, seriously? Everyone. Now hurry up. If we can get this synagogue ruler on our side, maybe we can get some serious ministry done in this town. But don't forget, never forget, every person that Jesus encounters is serious ministry to him. Jesus is no respecter of persons. He doesn't show partiality. To him, the daughter of the synagogue ruler and the poor woman with chronic pain are both dearly loved. So he stops in the middle of the crowd to find and acknowledge this hurting person. I know there are many of you here this morning who suffer from chronic pain or long-term disabilities. Oftentimes, for many people, it's those new or major or acute injuries and illnesses that kind of grab our attention and our hearts. And sadly, for many people, we get calloused to the chronic pain and suffering of our friends and neighbors. We can slip into thinking, well, there's nothing to be done, I guess, or I don't see any progress, so I don't need to keep checking in. In fact, I saw a former Karis member who moved to a, a different city um, just talking about this this week on Facebook. And I hope that not everyone thinks that way, but I do confess that I sometimes have to snap myself out of that way of thinking. God resensitizes my spirit to the people around me. But not Jesus. Never Jesus. If you're like the woman here in this passage, then be reminded that every headache, every swollen joint, every stomach cramp, every sleepless night, every mysterious and undiagnosed pain, Jesus is ready to stop. Turn around to look for you and to find you. And while Jesus may not say in every moment, your faith has made you well, he is in every moment of suffering there to tell you, take heart, daughter. And he comforts our spirits, makes it so that we can persevere. He draws us closer to himself and he reminds us of his promise, a certain promise, that one day all will be made well. It's faith in a promise like that. It's faith in a person like Jesus that enables the bleeding woman to stretch out her hand and lay hold of Jesus' garment. So as we think about these two women and these two interactions that they have with Jesus, let's take some time to compare and contrast. I know we're in the middle of summer, but students, you know, you remember those compare and contrast questions. When two things are set right next to each other, like the way Matthew does in his gospel here, what he wants us to catch are the things that are similar and then slightly different. Because it's those details that are going to highlight the main takeaways. 
It's those things that he is try, uh, primarily trying to communicate to us. So let's compare. Compare Jairus' daughter and the woman with the bleeding disease. In both instances, we see deep faith in the power and authority that Jesus has over healing. Jairus kneels before him. The bleeding woman touches the hem of Jesus' garment. Perhaps this is implying to us that she herself was in a low-to-the-ground position. Also, it seems like she didn't want to be noticed by Jesus. In both instances, that word daughter is highlighted. Jesus, Jairus says to Jesus, my daughter is dying. And when Jesus turns to see the bleeding woman, he addresses her by saying, daughter, take heart. Both of these women, they're ritually unclean or impure, one dead, the other bleeding, meaning that they ought not to be touched or be touching anyone. Yet, in both cases, Jesus either reaches out to touch or is reached out to and touched by these women in a way that restores them. As I considered these themes this week, there's lots of themes in this passage, but two that stuck out to me were the way that the women are centered in this story, in these stories, as well as kind of the ritual purity, cleanliness, status that plays into their encounters with Jesus. When we think about the Old Testament, the Old Covenant context that Jesus and his contemporaries lived under, ritual, ritual purity was of vital importance. So what is that? What is that at all? Ritual purity is a lot of that stuff that you read about in the book of Leviticus. All those laws, foods not to eat, things not to touch. To borrow from the folks over at uh, the Bible Project, Ritual purity is a state where you separate yourself from anything related to death. Diseased skin, dead bodies, bodily fluids, things like this, they make you impure ritually. And being ritually impure is not the same thing as sin. It's not like a morally culpable sin. People have to bury their relatives. People get sick. People have kids. Just... Becoming ritually impure is a part of life. It's not always sinful. But it is wrong to waltz into the presence of the God of life while in an impure state. Before you do that, you must go through the process of ritual purification. So, as a part of understanding this pure, impure, clean, unclean dynamic, think about the idea of contagions. This shouldn't be something that's difficult for us to understand. We all just live through uh, this thing called COVID-19. And in the same way that we know germs, you know, spread through contact and proximity, so too, these elements of ritual impurity, they spread and contaminate also. That is, they make other things and other people unclean when they come into contact if an object was unclean and you touched it, you would become unclean. Its uncleanliness would spread to you. 
We see in the Old Testament law, if an object becomes unclean, oftentimes it has to be destroyed. Or if a person becomes unclean, they have to be made pure again, either through waiting a certain time or by washing so that they could break their quarantine and rejoin society and worship God in the temple. And in thinking about that theme of ritual purity, we don't really live in that world anymore. Those parts of the Old Testament law, they're not brought into the New Testament. So the more I thought about it, and again as I thought about the centeredness of the women in this passage, something not altogether dissimilar came to my mind. And that was the topic of what's kind of become known as purity culture. And especially because oftentimes women have borne the brunt of the negative aspects of purity culture. Now, if you're familiar with purity culture as a concept, don't get up and leave yet. I know this can be a sensitive subject to bring up, and I know uh, it's, it's one that I see being brought up more and more in public discourse. But I want to uh, kind of approach this topic with a little bit of with delicacy and uh, in a way that's kind of corrective. As a point of pastoral application for our church body, I want us to think about how Jesus, based on our passage this morning, might speak into the purity culture that so many Christians were raised in. So first of all, what do I even mean when I say purity culture? If you grew up in the church in the 90s and 2000s, you may already know perfectly what I'm talking about. Um, But if you don't, I scoured the the landscape of information, um, trying to find a, a good definition or description. The Gospel Coalition had what I thought was kind of the most neutral description. They said, and kind of a primer, purity culture is the term often described, often used for the evangelical movement that attempts to promote a biblical view of sexual purity by discouraging dating, promoting virginity before marriage, often through the use of tools such as purity pledges, symbols such as purity rings, and events such as purity dances. The purity culture movement began in the 90s as Christians who were children or teens during the beginnings of the 60s era sexual revolution began to have children and teenagers of their own. At the time, many evangelicals were reacting to the negative effects of sex outside of marriage and attempted to once again ground sexuality in biblical ethics. It's kind of a lot, and I'm sure there's a lot more that could be said as well. But basically, uh, if you grew up and you were given books to read like I Kissed Dating Goodbye, Every Man's Battle, or you went through a True Love Waits Sunday School curriculum, you probably grew up in a church that uh, embraced, to some extent, you know, these purity culture teachings. And now, before I go on, I want to clarify something. I do believe that the heart of Jesus that we see in Matthew's gospel, it critiques the negative aspects of purity culture. But I would be unfaithful to the whole of Scripture if I just threw the baby out with the bathwater. In rejecting the unhealthy parts of purity culture, 
Some folks can be tempted to just swing that pendulum all the way to the other side, too far in the opposite direction, insisting that the one and only rule in Christian sexual ethics is consent, and then anything else goes. Now, obviously, consent is a central piece of Christian sexual ethics, the whole loving your neighbor as yourself thing. But the Bible's teaching cannot be reduced to that alone. So what I think we have on our hands when it comes to purity culture at its core is this maybe kernel down at the bottom that's good and and biblical and true. And that's that God's instruction for human sexual expression. The Bible teaches us that human sexuality is only to be expressed in the context of the one woman, one man, lifelong covenant union called marriage. And that this is inherently for our good and that other forms of sexual expression are off limits to us. This is the end that purity culture arises to guide young Christians towards. And that's a good end. That's a biblical end. It's the end that I want to guide you towards in my teaching and pastoral care. But here's the thing. This is important to remember. And it applies to all areas, not just sexuality or purity culture. Christians don't have the luxury of being ends justify the means people. We don't. Faithfulness to King Jesus requires that the means by which we pursue his ends must be consistent with his character and actually be good for people. And that's where purity culture really got it wrong and did some serious damage to people. So though the heart of purity culture may have been God's good and biblical design for marriage and sexuality, what has risen to the surface today is some of the, the toxic teachings that were built on top of that. Teachings designed to shame men and especially women. Teachings uh, that could be called damaged goods theology. Ideas about robbing your future spouse of something you owe them. Unbiblical promises of a future marriage or easy and instantly gratifying marital sex for those who wait teaching girls and women that they are, at least in part, responsible for the lusts of men and boys and shamefully reductive stereotypes about young women and men. And perhaps worst of all, there seems to be little to no room for how to engage those who have experienced sexual abuse in their lives to help them find genuine healing. Author and speaker, Uh, Linda K. Klein, she writes this about those harmful aspects of, of purity culture teaching. She says, expectations varied by gender. Everyone is expected to maintain absolute sexlessness before marriage. That means no sexual thoughts, feelings, or actions. And then upon marriage, expected to flip their sexuality on like a light switch. However, men are taught that their minds are evil, whereas women are taught their bodies are evil. That is to say, Men's thoughts and actions are said to be either pure or impure, while women themselves are said to be either pure or impure. And then, in kind of summarizing the reductive stereotypes that purity culture casts over young women and men, author Zach Wagner said in a recent interview, purity culture sees men and boys as uncontrollable sexual animals 
and sees women and girls as inherently temptuous sexual objects. So where do we go from here? For a generation of evangelical youth who receive those teachings, either implicitly or explicitly, how does the whole of God's word and the ministry of Jesus speak into the hurt that you may have experienced? And how can we prevent the next generation from imbibing those harmful teachings? Let's tackle just a couple of those really harmful teachings. See what scripture has to say. Right off the top is that kind of damaged goods idea. Maybe in your youth group growing up, your youth leader passed a flower around for everyone to touch And then at the end, when it got back to him, said, okay, who thinks that this flower is as good or as beautiful or as desirable as it was when it started? Maybe your youth leader was chewing on a piece of gum the whole time they were teaching. And at the end of the teaching, took it out of his mouth and said, okay, does anyone else want a bite of this? Sisters and brothers, I... I can't apologize on behalf of whoever said that to you or made you view yourself in an irredeemable way. But as someone who heard those illustrations as well, I am truly sorry that you had to experience them. Because the Bible tells us right at the beginning, right off the bat, Genesis 1, every man and woman who has ever existed, are made in the image of God. That means that every woman and man who has ever existed has infinite value and worth and are loved infinitely by the God who made them. But you know what? Even after humans bring sin into the world, the Bible never, ever, ever, anywhere says that the image of God was destroyed, lost, erased, removed, or damaged in people. We don't always reflect God the way we're supposed to, but that doesn't make anyone any less the image of God. We may sin or be sinned against, but we never stop being God's image bearers, valued and loved by him. No matter what you've done, God will not look at you the way we look at a piece of chewed up gum or a flower with fallen off petals. To confront the stereotypes that women and men, boys and girls are cast with, Scripture speaks to those as well. In a toxic purity culture, women and girls are told that they are temptresses or sexual objects who somehow both passively receive, yet are also responsible for male gazes and lusts. What does Jesus say? If you've been with us for most of our sermon on sermon in Matthew, sermon series through Matthew, you might already know. Because in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says famously, I say to you, speaking to men, that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. 
And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Jesus says that it is not women who are responsible for male lust, but it is men who are responsible for their own lusts. So much so that Jesus says, guys, you know what's better than being controlled by your desire? Gouging your eye out. You know what's better than objectifying your spiritual sisters? Chopping your hand off. Jesus is clear that women are not mere objects and should not be seen or treated as such. Likewise, for men who toxic purity culture says are just animalistic, hopelessly driven by their biological wiring. I don't know if I can think of a more defeatist or, frankly, anti-biblical teaching. The Apostle Paul has this to say to those who may feel trapped by their temptations and desires. He says, No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man or humanity in general. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But when the temp- with the temptation... He will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. And then to another church, he writes, Walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Now, the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law, and those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. The New Testament teaches us that in the middle of intense temptation, God has promised to give people an escape route called his own Holy Spirit. No longer are men, or women either for that matter, doomed to be controlled by their lusts because we're not mere animals or image bearers of God. Then finally, how does Jesus confront, confront us when we're filled with shame over what we've done or what has been done to us? And it's right back in our passage, right back into Matthew. Remember the women we read about today? One young girl, dead. By all accounts, this daughter is someone who Jesus should not have come into contact with. Someone whose hand Jesus should not have reached out and grabbed. The other woman, suffering from chronic bleeding for over a decade, 12 long years pursuing every treatment, paying every penny, unable to hug her family and friends or worship in the temple. By all accounts, this daughter of Israel should not have been contacting anyone, someone who should not have reached out and grabbed Jesus. But here's the thing. 
about Jesus' cars. Jesus is too good. He's too pure. He, it's not just that he's impervious to becoming unclean. He's ununcleanable. But Jesus is so clean that where normally someone else's impurity would transfer over, his cleanliness, his purity transfer over to them. Jesus is spreading his cleanliness, his holiness on accident, being touched in the crowd on his way to heal someone on purpose. Karas, I know that many of you may have been shaped by or hurt and shamed by this messed up purity culture scaffolding that you grew up in. It can cause us to shrink back from Jesus or shrink back from others that we would otherwise see as friends or neighbors. It can cause us to shrink back from Jesus to think that we're too impure, too unclean, too far gone, that we've made too many mistakes already and that when we imagine reaching out for Jesus' coattails, we shrink back. We think, if Jesus saw me reaching out, he'd recoil in disgust. After all, that's what I learned in church as a kid. After all, that's how I looked at myself in the mirror this morning. No church when you squeeze your way through the crowds towards Jesus, he's there waiting for you with happy tears filling his eyes. Not just there to allow you to touch the fringe of his garment, still keeping you at arm's reach, but to grab you by the hand and lift you up onto your feet and raise you to new life. I talked to our Karis youth team this week about uh, this passage, just get their thoughts and experiences, either from growing up, hearing some of these purity culture teachings, or maybe what uh, they would hope to accomplish as they lead Karis Youth here. Are you guys listening, Karis Youth? And Karis Church, this goes for everyone. One of our youth leaders, she said to me, at the end of the day, it's Jesus, and only Jesus, that makes us pure. It's nothing that we earn. It's nothing that we do or don't do, think or don't think, see or don't see, say or don't say. At the end of the day, it's Jesus who makes us pure. At the beginning of the sermon, I, I asked you, you know, girl dads, what would you do for your daughters? Karsh Church, what would you do for the women and girls here? When we think about even how to start answering that question. The first and last place we ought to go is to our Father in Heaven, the perfect girl dad. Because when we ask God, God, what would you do for your daughters? He shows us. He sends his only son. He comes into our unclean, impure, shame-filled world to bring them back home. If I can paraphrase our passage from a couple weeks ago, Jesus said, I didn't come to call the pure, but I came to clean the impure.
On the cross, Jesus died even though he was the perfectly pure one. He took the punishment for all of our sins, our uncleanliness, our impurities. Even though he didn't deserve it, he took on the death that he healed Jairus' daughter of. And though he was innocent, he poured out the blood that he could have dried up with just a touch. Then after three days, Jesus rose again. He rose from the dead, unleashing the life-purifying and transforming power that would bring all of God's daughters and sons back home into his family. That's the heart of the gospel, Karis Church. Will you pray with me? Your Father, we praise you this morning and we honor you together. We thank you for your word to us, for your written word and for the word who became flesh. Jesus, it's you who moves towards us in compassion when we're in sin or impurity. And you reach out to us with a touch that restores our whole life. Jesus, you're our purity now and forever. Lord, as we continue to worship together this morning around your table, um, would you grant us unity by your spirit? Would you give us a greater experience of unity with you and with one another? It's in your name we pray and for your glory that we pray. Amen.